0: Welcome to part two of Craftlit episode 188, The End is Nigh. We just left off listening to chapter 41, where uh, we were talking about Sandy and uh, the problems that Hank Morgan was going to be facing because the people who he was trying to convert to modern ways had grown up in the sixth century and it was going to be quite difficult for them to change. And so we head into 42 with that piece of information in mind chapter 42
1: war i found clarence alone in his quarters drowned in melancholy and in place of the electric light he had reinstituted the ancient rag lamp and sat there in a grisly twilight with all curtains drawn tight he sprang up and rushed for me eagerly saying oh it's worth a billion millrays to look upon a live person again "'He knew me as easily as if I hadn't been disguised at all, "'which frightened me, one may easily believe that. "'Quick now, tell me the meaning of this fearful disaster,' I said. "'How did it come about?' "'Well, if there hadn't been any Queen Guinevere, "'it wouldn't have come so early. "'But it would have come anyway. "'It would have come on our own account by and by. "'By luck it happened to come on the Queen's.' "'And, Sir Lancelot's?' "'Just so.' "'Give me the details.' I reckon you will grant that during some years there has been only one pair of eyes in these kingdoms that has not been looking steadily askance at the Queen and Sir Lancelot. Yes, King Arthur's. And only one heart that was without suspicion. Yes, the King's. A heart that isn't capable of thinking evil of a friend. Well, the King might have gone on still happy and unsuspecting to the end of his days, but for one of your modern improvements, the stock-board— When you left, three miles of the London, Canterbury, and Dover were ready for the rails, and also ready and ripe for manipulation in the stock market. It was wildcat, and everybody knew it. The stock was for sale at a giveaway. What does Sir Lancelot do, but—' Yes, I know. He quietly picked up nearly all of it for a song. Then he bought about twice as much more, deliverable upon call, and he was about to call when I left. Very well, he did call. The boys couldn't deliver. Oh, he had them, and he just settled his grip and squeezed them. They were laughing in their sleeves over their smartness in selling stock to him at fifteen and sixteen and along there that wasn't worth ten. Well, when they had laughed long enough on that side of their mouths, they rested up that side by shifting the laugh to the other side. That was when they compromised with the Invincible at two hundred and eighty-three. Good land!' he skinned them alive and they deserved it anyway the whole kingdom rejoiced well among the flayed were sir agravaine and sir mordred nephews to the king end of the first act act second scene first an apartment in carlisle castle where the court had gone for a few days hunting persons present the whole tribe of the king's nephews mordred and agravaine proposed to call the guileless arthur's attention to guinevere and sir lancelot sir gawain sir gareth and Sir Gaheris will have nothing to do with it. A dispute ensues with loud talk. In the midst of it enter the king. Mordred and Agravaine spring their devastating tale upon him. Tableau. A trap is laid for Lancelot by the king's command, and Sir Lancelot walks into it. He made it sufficiently uncomfortable for the ambushed witnesses to it, Mordred, Agravaine, and twelve knights of lesser rank, for he killed every one of them but Mordred. But, of course, that couldn't straighten matters between Lancelot and the king.' and didn't. Oh, dear! Only one thing could result, I see that. War! And the knights of the realm divided into a king's party and a Sir Launcelot's party. Yes, that was the way of it. The king sent the queen to the stake, proposing to purify her with fire. and Lancelot and his knights rescued her, and in doing it slew certain good old friends of yours and mine, in fact, some of the best we ever had. To it, Sir Le orgulus Sir Segwaridus. "'Sir Grifflet, le fils de Dieu, "'Sir Brandolus, Sir Aglovale. "'Oh, you tear out my heartstrings! "'Wait, I'm not done yet. "'Sir Tor, Sir Gauter, Sir Gillimer, "'the very best man in my subordinate nine! "'What a handy right-fielder he was! "'Sir Reynolds' three brothers, "'Sir Damas, Sir Priamus, Sir Kay, the stranger. "'My peerless shortstop! "'I've seen him catch a daisy-cutter in his teeth. "'Come, I can't stand this!' "'Sir Driant, Sir Lambegus, Sir Hermendi, Sir Pertilope, Sir Pyramonis, and—whom do you think?' "'Rush, go on. Sir Gaheris and Sir Gareth, both.' "'Oh, incredible! Their love for Lancelot was indestructible. "'Well, it was an accident. They were simply onlookers. They were unarmed, and were merely there to witness the Queen's punishment.' "'Sir Lancelot smote down whoever came in the way of his blind fury, "'and he killed these without noticing who they were. "'Here is an instantaneous photograph one of our boys got of the battle. "'It's for sale on every newsstand. "'There the figures nearest the Queen are Sir Lancelot with his sword up "'and Sir Gareth gasping his last breath. "'You can catch the agony in the Queen's face through the curling smoke. "'It's a rattling battle-picture.' "'Indeed it is. "'We must take good care of it. "'Its historical value is incalculable.' "'Go on.' "'Well, the rest of the tale is just war, pure and simple. Lancelot retreated to his town and castle of joyous guard, and gathered there a great following of knights. The king, with a great host, went there, and there was desperate fighting during several days, and, as a result, all the plain around was paved with corpses and cast-iron. Then the church patched up a peace between Arthur and Lancelot, and the queen, and everybody—everybody but Sir Gawain— he was bitter about the slaying of his brothers Gareth and Gaheris, and would not be appeased. He notified Lancelot to get him thence, and make swift preparation, and look to be soon attacked. So Lancelot sailed to his duchy of Guienne with his following, and Gawain soon followed with an army, and he beguiled Arthur to go with him. Arthur left the kingdom in Sir Mordred's hands until you should return. Ah, a king's customary wisdom! Yes, "'Sir Mordred set himself at once to work to make his kingship permanent. "'He was going to marry Guinevere as a first move, "'but she fled and shut herself up in the Tower of London. "'Mordred attacked. "'The Bishop of Canterbury dropped down on him with the interdict. "'The King returned. "'Mordred fought him at Dover, at Canterbury, and again at Barham Down. "'Then there was talk of peace and a composition. "'Terms, Mordred to have Cornwall and Kent during Arthur's life, "'and the whole kingdom afterward. "'Well, upon my word!' I dream of a republic to be a dream, and so remain. Yes, the two armies lay near Salisbury. Gawain—Gawain's head is at Dover Castle, he fell in the fight there. Gawain appeared to Arthur in a dream—at least his ghost did—and warned him to refrain from conflict for a month, let the delay cost what it might. But battle was precipitated by an accident. Arthur had given order that if a sword was raised during the consultation over the proposed treaty with Mordred— "'sound the trumpet and fall on,' for he had no confidence in Mordred. "'Mordred had given a similar order to his people. "'Well, by and by an adder bit a knight's heel. "'The knight forgot all about the order and made a slash at the adder with his sword. "'Inside of half a minute those two prodigious hosts came together with a crash. "'They butchered away all day. "'Then the king—' "'However, we have started something fresh since you left. "'Our paper has—' "'No, what is that?' "'War correspondence! "'Why, that's good. "'Yes, the paper was booming right along, "'for the interdict made no impression, "'got no grip, while the war lasted. "'I had war correspondence with both armies. "'I will finish that battle "'by reading you what one of the boys says. "'Then the king looked about him, "'and then was he where of all his host "'and all of his good knights "'were left no more on live but two knights. "'That was Sir Lucan de Butler "'and his brother Sir Bedivere.' and they were full sore wounded. "'Jesu, mercy,' said the king, "'where are all my noble knights becoming? Alas, that ever I should see this doleful day! For now,' said Arthur, "'I am come to mine end, but would to God, I wist where were that traitor Sir Mordred that hath cost all this mischief?' Then was King Arthur ware where Sir Mordred leaned upon his sword among a great heap of dead men. "'Now give me my spear,' said Arthur unto Sir Lucan, "'for yonder I have espied the traitor that all this woe hath wrought.' Sir, let him be, said Sir Lucan, for he is unhappy. If ye pass this unhappy day, ye shall be right well revenged upon him. Good Lord, remember ye of your knight's dream, and what the spirit of Sir Gawain told you this night. Yet God of his great goodness hath preserved you hitherto. Therefore, for God's sake, my Lord, leave off by this. For, blessed be God, ye have won the field, for here we be three on live, and with Sir Mordred is none on live and if ye leave off now, this wicked day of destiny is past. Tide me death, betide me life, said the king. Now I see him yonder alone. He shall never escape mine hands, for at a better avail shall I never have him. God speed you well, said Sir Bedivere. Then the king gat his spear in both his hands, and ran towards Sir Mordred, crying, Traitor! now is thy death day come! And when Sir Mordred heard Sir Arthur, he ran until him with his sword drawn in his hand, and then King Arthur smote Sir Mordred under the shield, with a foin of his spear throughout the body more than a fathom, and when Sir Mordred felt that he had his death's wound, he thrust himself with the might that he had up to the butt of King Arthur's spear, and right so he smote his father Arthur with his sword holden in both his hands, on the side of the head, that the sword pierced the helmet and the brain-pan, and therewithal Sir Mordred fell stark dead to the earth, and the noble Arthur fell in a swoon to the earth, "'And there he swooned oft times. "'That is a good piece of war correspondence, Clarence. "'You are a first-rate newspaper man. "'Well, is the king all right? "'Did he get well? "'Poor soul, no, he is dead.' "'I was utterly stunned. "'It had not seemed to me that any wound could be mortal to him. "'And the queen, Clarence? "'She is a nun in Almsbury. "'What changes? "'In such a short while!' it is inconceivable. What next, I wonder? I can tell you what next. Well, stake our lives and stand by them. What do you mean by that? The church is master now. The interdict included you with Mordred. It is not to be removed while you remain alive. The clans are gathering. The church has gathered all the knights that are left alive, and as soon as you are discovered, we shall have business on our hands. Stuff!" With our deadly scientific war material, with our hosts of trained, save your breath, we haven't sixty faithful left. What are you saying? Our schools, our colleges, our vast workshops, our— When those nights come, those establishments will empty themselves and go over to the enemy. Did you think you had educated the superstition out of those people? I certainly did think it. Well, then you may unthink it. They stood every strain easily until the interdict— since then they merely put on a bold outside at heart they are quaking make up your mind to it when the armies come the mask will fall it's hard news we are lost they will turn our own science against us no they won't why because i and a handful of the faithful have blocked that game i'll tell you what i've done and what moved me to it smart as you are the church was smarter it was the church that sent you cruising through her servants the doctors clarence it is the truth i know it every officer of your ship was the church's picked servant and so was every man of the crew oh come it is just as i tell you i did not find out these things at once but i found them out finally did you send me verbal information by the commander of the ship to the effect that upon his return to you with supplies you were going to leave cadiz cadiz "'I haven't been at Cadiz at all. "'Going to leave Cadiz and cruise in distant seas "'indefinitely for the health of your family? "'Did you send me that word? "'Of course not. "'I would have written, wouldn't I? "'Naturally. "'I was troubled and suspicious. "'When the commander sailed again, "'I managed to ship a spy with him. "'I have never heard a vessel or spy since. "'I gave myself two weeks to hear from you, in. then I resolved to send a ship to Cadiz. "'There was a reason why I didn't. "'Why was that?' "'Our navy had suddenly and mysteriously disappeared. "'Also as suddenly and as mysteriously "'the railway and telegraph and telephone service ceased, "'the men all deserted, poles were cut down, "'the church laid a ban upon the electric light. "'I had to be up and doing and straight off. "'Your life was safe. "'Nobody in these kingdoms but Merlin would venture "'to touch such a magician as you "'without ten thousand men at his back. "'I had nothing to think of but—' how to put preparations in the best trim against your coming. I felt safe myself. Nobody would be anxious to touch a pet of yours. So this is what I did. From our various works I selected all the men, boys, I mean, whose faithfulness under whatsoever pressure I could swear to, and I called them together secretly and gave them their instructions. There are fifty-two of them, none younger than fourteen, and none above seventeen years old. Why did you select boys?' because all the others were born in an atmosphere of superstition and reared in it. It is in their blood and bones. We imagined we had educated it out of them. They thought so, too. The interdict woke them up like a thunderclap. It revealed them to themselves, and it revealed them to me, too. With boys it was different. Such as have been under our training from seven to ten years have had no acquaintance with the church's terrors, and it was among these that I found my fifty-two. As a next move I paid a private visit to that old cave of Merlin's, not the small one, the big one. Yes, the one where we secretly established our first great electric plant when I was projecting a miracle. Just so. And as that miracle hadn't become necessary then, I thought it might be a good idea to utilize the plant now. I've provisioned the cave for a siege. A good idea, a first-rate idea. I think so. I placed four of my boys there as a guard, inside and out of sight.' Nobody was to be hurt while outside, but any attempt to enter, well, we said just let anybody try it. Then I went out into the hills and uncovered and cut the secret wires which connected your bedroom with the wires that go to the dynamite deposits under all our vast factories, mills, workshops, magazines, etc., and about midnight I and my boys turned out and connected that wire with the cave, and nobody but you and I suspects where the other end of it goes to." We laid it underground, of course, and it was all finished in a couple of hours or so. We shan't have to leave our fortress now when we want to blow up our civilization. It was the right move and the natural one, military necessity, in the changed condition of things. Well, what changes have come? We expected to be besieged in the palace some time or other, but—however, go on. Next we built a wire fence. Wire fence? "'Yes, you dropped the hint of it yourself two or three years ago. "'Oh, I remember, the time the church tried her strength against us the first time, "'and presently thought it wise to wait for a hopefuller season. "'Well, how have you arranged the fence?' "'I start twelve immensely strong wires, naked, not insulated, "'from a big dynamo in the cave, "'dynamo with no brushes except a positive and a negative one. "'Yes, that's right.' THE WIRES GO OUT FROM THE CAVE AND FENCE IN A CIRCLE OF LEVEL GROUND A HUNDRED YARDS IN DIAMETER. THEY MAKE TWELVE INDEPENDENT FENCES, TEN FEET APART, THAT IS TO SAY, TWELVE CIRCLES WITHIN CIRCLES, AND THEIR ENDS COME INTO THE CAVE AGAIN. RIGHT. GO ON. THE FENCES ARE FASTENED TO HEAVY OAKEN POSTS ONLY THREE FEET APART, AND THESE POSTS ARE SUNK FIVE FEET IN THE GROUND. THAT IS GOOD AND STRONG. YES, THE WIRES HAVE NO GROUND CONNECTION OUTSIDE THE CAVE. They go out from the positive brush of the dynamo, there is a ground connection through the negative brush, the other ends of the wire return to the cave, and each is grounded independently. No, no, that won't do. Why? It's too expensive, uses up force for nothing. You don't want any ground connection except the one through the negative brush. The other end of every wire must be brought back into the cave and fastened independently and without any ground connection. Now then, observe the economy of it. A cavalry charge hurls itself against the fence. You are using no power. You are spending no money, for there is only one ground connection till those horses come against the wire. The moment they touch it, they form a connection with a negative brush through the ground and drop dead. Don't you see? You are using no energy until it is needed. Your lightning is there and ready like the load in a gun, but it isn't costing you a cent till you touch it off. Oh, yes, the single ground connection. Of course! I don't know how i overlooked that it's not only cheaper but it's more effectual than the other way for if wires break or get tangled no harm is done no especially if we have a telltale in the cave and disconnect the broken wire well go on the gatlings yes that's arranged in the center of the inner circle on a spacious platform six feet high i've grouped a battery of thirteen gatling guns and provided plenty of ammunition that's it They command every approach, and when the church's knights arrive, there's going to be music. The uh, brow of the precipice over the cave. I've got a wire fence there, and a gatling. They won't drop any rocks down on us. Well, and the glass-cylinder dynamite torpedoes? That's attended to. It's the prettiest garden that was ever planted. It's a belt forty feet wide, and goes around the outer fence. Distance between it and the fence, one hundred yards. Kind of neutral ground that space is. There isn't a single square yard of that whole belt but is equipped with a torpedo. We laid them on the surface of the ground and sprinkled a layer of sand over them. It's an innocent-looking garden, but you let a man start in to hoe it once, and you'll see. You tested the torpedoes? Well, I was going to, but— But what? Why, it's an immense oversight not to apply a— Test? Yes, I know. But they're all right. I laid a few in the public road beyond our lines, and they've been tested. "'Oh, that alters the case. Who did it?' "'A church committee. How kind. "'Yes, they came to command us to make submission. "'You see, they didn't really come to test the torpedoes. "'That was merely an incident.' "'Did the committee make a report?' "'Yes, they made one. You could have heard it a mile.' "'Unanimous?' "'That was the nature of it. "'After that I put up some signs for the protection of future committees, "'and we've had no intruders since.' Clarence, you've done a world of work and done it perfectly. We had plenty of time for it. There wasn't any occasion for hurry. We sat silent a while, thinking. Then my mind was made up, and I said, Yes, everything is ready. Everything is shipshape. No detail is wanting. I know what to do now. So do I. Sit down and wait. No, sir. Rise up and strike. Do you mean it? Yes, indeed. The defensive isn't in my line, and the offensive is. That is, when I hold a fair hand, two thirds as good a hand as the enemy. Oh yes, we'll rise up and strike. Uh, that's our game. A hundred one. You are right. When does the performance begin? Now we'll proclaim the republic. Well, that will precipitate things. Sure enough. It will make them buzz, I tell you. England will be a hornet's nest before noon tomorrow. if the church's hand hasn't lost its cunning, and we know it hasn't. Now you write, and I'll dictate thus. PROCLAMATION Be it known unto all, whereas the king, having died and left no heir, it becomes my duty to continue the executive authority vested in me until a government shall have been created and set in motion. The monarchy has lapsed. It no longer exists." By consequence all political power has reverted to its original source the people of the nation. With the monarchy its several adjuncts died also. Wherefore there is no longer a nobility, no longer a privileged class, no longer an established church. All men are become exactly equal, they are upon one common level, and religion is free. A republic is hereby proclaimed as being the natural estate of a nation when other authority has ceased. It is the duty of the British people to meet together immediately, and by their votes elect representatives, and deliver into their hands the government. I signed it, the boss, and dated it from Merlin's Cave. Clarence said, "'Why, that tells where we are, and invites them to call right away. That is the idea. We strike, by the proclamation, then it's their innings.' Now have the thing set up and printed and posted right off. That is, give the order. Then, if you've got a couple of bicycles handy at the foot of the hill, ho for Merlin's cave. I shall be ready in ten minutes. What a cyclone there is going to be tomorrow when this piece of paper gets to work. It's a pleasant old palace, this is. I wonder if we shall ever again... But never mind about that. End of chapter 42
0: Well, again, Twain made an interesting choice. When he had Clarence read the war correspondence version of the death of Arthur, that was lifted from Mallory again. And it's, you know, there's speculation about why why Twain did that. Was it just because it was so famous and, and people knew it? And so, rather than, you know, war against people's memory of Mallory's version, he would just use it? Or, or if it was that um, he really just couldn't bring himself to kill off Arthur on his own. Uh, interesting how he brought up to date, you know, brought it around to the Lancelot and Guinevere uh, issue and, and, you know, modernized it a bit for, for his, uh, his placement of them in his, in his own history, but, but it still winds up being the end of Camelot. And, um, and poor Clarence, and all of the things Clarence has done. I mean, this chapter was called War, and war hasn't happened yet, but certainly the the battle plans have been drawn up. And, uh, and I'm going to take you right now into...
1: Chapter 43, The Battle of the Sand Belt. In Merlin's cave, Clarence and I and 52 fresh, bright, well-educated, clean-minded young British boys... At dawn I sent an order to the factories and to all our great works to stop operations and remove all life to a safe distance, as everything was going to be blown up by secret mines, and no telling at what moment, therefore, vacate at once. These people knew me and had confidence in my word. They would clear out without waiting to part their hair, and I could take my own time about dating the explosion. You couldn't hire one of them to go back during the century if the explosion was still impending." We had a week of waiting. It was not dull for me, because I was writing all the time. During the first three days I finished turning my old diary into this narrative form. It only required a chapter or so to bring it down to date. The rest of the week I took up in writing letters to my wife. It was always my habit to write to Sandy every day, whenever we were separate. And now I kept up the habit for love of it, and of her— though I couldn't do anything with the letters, of course, after I had written them. But it put in the time, you see, and was almost like talking. It was almost as if I was saying, Sandy, if you and Hello Central were here in the cave instead of only your photographs, what good times we could have. And then, you know, I could imagine the baby goo-gooing something out in reply, with its fists in its mouth and itself stretched across its mother's lap on its back, and she laughing and admiring and worshipping and now and then tickling under the baby's chin to set it cackling, and then maybe throwing in a word of answer to me herself, and so on and so on. Well, don't you know, I could sit there in the cave with my pen and keep it up that way by the hour with them. Why, it was almost like having us all together again. I had spies out every night, of course, to get news. Every report made things look more and more impressive. The hosts were gathering, gathering— Down all the roads and paths of England the knights were riding, and priests rode with them to hearten these original crusaders, this being the church's war. All the nobilities, big and little, were on their way, and all the gentry. This was all as was expected. We should thin out this sort of folk to such a degree that the people would have nothing to do but just step to the front with their republic and— "'Ah, what a donkey I was! Toward the end of the week I began to get this large and disenchanting fact through my head, that the mass of the nation had swung their caps and shouted for the Republic for about one day, and there an end. The church, the nobles, and the gentry then turned one grand all-disapproving frown upon them and shriveled them into sheep. From that moment the sheep had begun to gather to the fold—that is to say, the camps and offer their valueless lives and their valuable wool to the righteous cause. Why, even the very men who had lately been slaves were in the righteous cause, and glorifying it, praying for it, sentimentally slabbering over it, just like all the other commoners. Imagine such human muck as this. Conceive of this folly. Yes, it was now death to the republic everywhere, not a descending voice. "'All England was marching against us. "'Truly this was more than I had bargained for. "'I watched my fifty-two boys narrowly, "'watched their faces, their walk, their unconscious attitudes, "'for all these are a language, a language given us purposely, "'that it may betray us in times of emergency "'when we have secrets which we want to keep. "'I knew that that thought would keep saying itself "'over and over again in their minds and hearts. "'All England is marching against us.' and ever more strenuously imploring attention with each repetition, even more sharply realizing itself to their imaginations, until even in their sleep they would find no rest from it, but hear the vague and flitting creatures of the dream say, All England, all England is marching against you. I knew all this would happen. I knew that ultimately the pressure would become so great that it would compel utterance. Therefore I must be ready with an answer at that time, an answer well chosen and tranquilizing. I was right. The time came. They had to speak. Poor lads, it was pitiful to see. They were so pale, so worn, so troubled. At first their spokesman could hardly find voice or words, but he presently got both. This is what he said, and he put it in the neat modern English taught him in my school's. WE HAVE TRIED TO FORGET WHAT WE ARE, ENGLISH BOYS. WE HAVE TRIED TO PUT REASON BEFORE SENTIMENT, DUTY BEFORE LOVE. OUR MINDS APPROVE, BUT OUR HEARTS REPROACH US. WHILE APPARENTLY IT WAS ONLY THE NOBILITY, ONLY THE GENTRY, ONLY THE TWENTY-FIVE OR THIRTY-THOUSAND knights LEFT ALIVE OUT OF THE LATE WARS, WE WERE OF ONE MIND AND UNDISTURBED BY ANY TROUBLING DOUBT each and every one of these fifty-two lads who stand here before you said they have chosen it is their affair but think the matter is altered all england is marching against us oh sir consider reflect these people are our people they are bone of our bone flesh of our flesh we love them do not ask us to destroy our nation well it shows the value of looking ahead and being ready for a thing when it happens If I hadn't foreseen this thing and been fixed, that boy would have had me. I couldn't have said a word. But I was fixed. I said, My boys, your hearts are in the right place. You have thought the worthy thought. You have done the worthy thing. You are English boys. You will remain English boys, and you will keep that name unsmirched. Give yourselves no further concern. Let your minds be at ease. Consider this— While all England is marching against us, who is in the van? Who, by the commonest rules of war, will march in the front? Answer me. The mounted host of mailed knights. True, they are thirty thousand strong. Acres deep they will march. Now observe. None but they will ever strike the sand belt. Then there will be an episode... Immediately after, the civilian multitude in the rear will retire to meet business engagements elsewhere. None but nobles and gentry are knights, and none but these will remain to dance to our music after that episode. It is absolutely true that we shall have to fight nobody but these thirty thousand knights. Now speak, and it shall be as you decide. Shall we avoid the battle, retire from the field? No! The shout was unanimous and hearty. "'Are you—are you—well—afraid of these thirty thousand nights?' That joke brought out a good laugh. The boys' troubles vanished away, and they went gaily to their posts. Ah, they were a darling, fifty-two, as pretty as girls, too. I was ready for the enemy now. Let the approaching big day come along. It would find us on deck. The big day arrived on time— At dawn the sentry on watch in the corral came into the cave and reported a moving black mass under the horizon and a faint sound which he thought to be military music. Breakfast was just ready. We sat down and ate. This over I made the boys a little speech and then sent out a detail to man the battery with Clarence in command of it. The sun rose presently and sent its unobstructed splendors over the land and we saw a prodigious host moving slowly toward us, with a steady drift and a lined front of a wave of the sea. Nearer and nearer it came, and more and more sublimely imposing became its aspect. Yes, all England was there, apparently. Soon we could see the innumerable banners fluttering, and then the sun struck the sea of armor and set it all aflash. Yes, it was a fine sight. I hadn't ever seen anything to beat it. At last we could make out details.' All the front ranks, no telling how many acres deep, were horsemen, plumed knights in armor. Suddenly we heard the blare of trumpets, the slow walk burst into a gallop, and then—well, it was wonderful to see. Down swept that vast horseshoe wave, it approached the sand belt, my breath stood still, nearer, nearer. The strip of green turf beyond the yellow belt grew narrow, narrower still, became a mere ribbon in front of the horses— then disappeared under their hoofs. Great Scott! Why, the whole front of that host shot into the air with a thunder crash, and became a whirling tempest of rags and fragments, and along the ground lay a thick wall of smoke that hid what was left of the multitude from our sight. Time for the second step in the plan of campaign. I touched a button and shook the bones of England loose from her spine. In that explosion all our noble civilization factories went up in the air and disappeared from the earth. It was a pity, but it was necessary. We could not afford to let the enemy turn our own weapons against us. Now ensued one of the dullest quarter-hours I had ever endured. We waited in a silent solitude, enclosed by our circles of wire and by a circle of heavy smoke outside of these. We couldn't see over the wall of smoke, and we couldn't see through it but at last it began to shred away lazily, and by the end of another quarter hour the land was clear and our curiosity was enabled to satisfy itself. No living creature was in sight. We now perceived that additions had been made to our defenses. The dynamite had dug a ditch more than a hundred feet wide all around us and cast up an embankment some twenty-five feet high on both borders of it. As to destruction of life, it was amazing!' "'Moreover, it was beyond estimate. "'Of course, we could not count the dead "'because they did not exist as individuals, "'but merely as homogeneous protoplasm "'with alloys of iron and buttons. "'No life was in sight, "'but necessarily there must have been "'some wounded in the rear ranks "'who were carried off the field "'under cover of the wall of smoke. "'There would be sickness among the others. "'There always is, after an episode like that. "'But there would be no reinforcements.' This was the last stand of the chivalry of England. It was all that was left of the order after the recent annihilating wars. So I felt quite safe in believing that the utmost force that could for the future be brought against us would be but small, that is, of knights. I therefore issued a congratulatory proclamation to my army in these words, Soldiers, champions of human liberty and equality, your general congratulates you. In the pride of his strength and the vanity of his renown, an arrogant enemy came against you. You were ready. The conflict was brief, on your side glorious. This mighty victory, having been achieved utterly without loss, stands without example in history. So long as the planets shall continue to move in their orbits, the battle of the sand belt will not perish out of the memories of men. THE BOSS I read it well, and the applause I got was very gratifying to me. I then wound up with these remarks. The war with the English nation, as a nation, is at an end. The nation has retired from the field and the war. Before it can be persuaded to return, war will have ceased. This campaign is the only one that is going to be fought. It will be brief, the briefest in history." also the most destructive to life, considered from the standpoint of proportion of casualties to numbers engaged. We are done with the nation. Henceforth we deal only with the knights. English knights can be killed, but they cannot be conquered. We know what is before us. While one of these men remains alive, our task is not finished. The war is not ended. We will kill them all.' Loud and long-continued applause. I picketed the great embankments thrown up around our lines by the dynamite explosion, merely a lookout of a couple of boys to announce the enemy when he should appear again. Next I sent an engineer and forty men to a point just beyond our lines on the south, to turn a mountain brook that was there, and bring it within our lines and under our command, arranging it in such a way that I could make instant use of it in an emergency. The forty men were divided into two shifts of twenty each, and were to relieve each other every two hours. In ten hours the work was accomplished. It was nightfall now, and I withdrew my pickets. The one who had had the northern outlook reported a camp in sight, but visible with a glass only. He also reported that a few knights had been feeling their way toward us, and had driven some cattle across our lines, but that the knights themselves had not come very near." That was what I had been expecting. They were feeling us, you see. They wanted to know if we were going to play that red terror on them again. They would grow bolder in the night, perhaps. I believed I knew what project they would attempt, because it was plainly the thing I would attempt myself if I were in their places, and as ignorant as they were. I mentioned it to Clarence. "'I think you are right,' said he. "'It is the obvious thing for them to try.' "'Well, then,' I said, "'if they do it, they are doomed.' "'Certainly.' They won't have the slightest show in the world. Of course they won't. It's dreadful, Clarence. It seems an awful pity. The thing disturbed me so that I couldn't get any peace of mind for thinking of it and worrying over it. So, at last, to quiet my conscience, I framed this message to the knights. To the Honourable, the commander of the insurgent chivalry of England, you fight in vain. We know your strength, if one may call it by that name, WE KNOW THAT AT THE UTMOST YOU CANNOT BRING AGAINST US ABOVE FIVE AND TWENTY THOUSAND knights. THEREFORE YOU HAVE NO CHANCE, NONE WHATEVER. REFLECT. WE ARE WELL-EQUIPPED, WELL-FORTIFIED. WE NUMBER FIFTY-FOUR. FIFTY-FOUR WHAT? MEN? NO. minds. THE CAPABLEST IN THE WORLD, A FORCE AGAINST WHICH MERE ANIMAL MIGHT MAY NO MORE HOPE TO PREVAIL, then may the idle waves of the sea hope to prevail against the granite barriers of England. Be advised. We offer you your lives. For the sake of your families, do not reject the gift. We offer you this chance, and it is the last. Throw down your arms. Surrender unconditionally to the Republic, and all will be forgiven. Signed, The Boss. I read it to Clarence, and said I proposed to send it by a flag of truce— he laughed the sarcastic laugh he was born with and said somehow it seems impossible for you to ever fully realize what these nobilities are now let us save a little time and trouble consider me the commander of the knights yonder now then you are the flag of truce approach and deliver me your message and i will give you your answer i humored the idea i came forward under an imaginary guard of the enemy's soldiers produced my paper and read it through For answer, Clarence struck the paper out of my hand, pursed up a scornful lip, and said with lofty disdain, "'Dismember me, this animal, and return him in a basket to the base-born knave who sent him. Other answer have I none.' How empty is theory in presence of fact! And this was just fact and nothing else. It was the thing that would have happened. There was no getting around that. I tore up the paper and granted my mistimed sentimentalities a permanent rest. Then to business.' I tested the electric signals from the gatling platform to the cave and made sure that they were all right. I tested and retested those which commanded the fences. These were signals whereby I could break and renew the electric current in each fence independently of the others at will. I placed the brook connection under the guard and authority of three of my best boys, who would alternate in two-hour watches all night and promptly obey my signal, if I should have occasion to give it, three revolver shots in quick succession. Sentry duty was discarded for the night, and the corral left empty of life. I ordered that quiet be maintained in the cave, and the electric lights turned down to a glimmer. As soon as it was good and dark, I shut off the current from all the fences, and then groped my way out to the embankment bordering our side of the great dynamite ditch. I crept to the top of it, and lay there on the slant of the muck to watch. But it was too dark to see anything. As for sounds, there were none. The stillness was death-like. True, there were the usual night sounds of the country, the whir of night birds, the buzzing of insects, the barking of distant dogs, the mellow lowing of far-off kine. But these didn't seem to break the stillness, they only intensified it and added a gruesome melancholy to it into the bargain. I presently gave up looking, The night shut down so black, but I kept my ears strained to catch the least suspicious sound, for I judged I had only to wait, and I shouldn't be disappointed. However, I had to wait a long time. At last I caught what you may call indistinct glimpses of sound-dulled metallic sound. I pricked up my ears, then, and held my breath, for this was the sort of thing I had been waiting for. This sound thickened and approached from toward the north. Presently I heard it at my own level— the ridge top of the opposite embankment, a hundred feet or more away. Then I seemed to see a row of black dots appear along that ridge. Human heads? I couldn't tell. It mightn't be anything at all. You can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. However, the question was soon settled. I heard that metallic noise descending into the great ditch. It augmented fast. It spread all along, and it unmistakably furnished me this fact— An armed host was taking up its quarters in the ditch. Yes, these people were arranging a little surprise party for us. We could expect entertainment about dawn, possibly earlier. I groped my way back to the corral now. I had seen enough. I went to the platform and signaled to turn the current on to the two inner fences. Then I went into the cave and found everything satisfactory there, nobody awake but the working watch. I woke Clarence and told him the great ditch was filling up with men— and that I believed all the knights were coming for us in a body. It was my notion that as soon as dawn approached we could expect the ditches ambuscaded thousands to swarm up over the embankment and make an assault and be followed immediately by the rest of their army. Clarence said, "'They will be wanting to send a scout or two in the dark to make preliminary observations. Why not take the lightning off the outer fences and give them a chance?' "'I've already done it, Clarence. Did you ever know me to be inhospitable?' no you are a good heart i want to go and be a reception committee i will go too we crossed the corral and lay down together between the two inside fences even the dim light of the cave had disordered our eyesight somewhat but the focus straightway began to regulate itself and soon it was adjusted for present circumstances we had had to feel our way before but we could make out to see the fence posts now We started a whispered conversation, but suddenly Clarence broke off and said, "'What is that?' "'What is what?' "'That thing yonder.' "'What thing? Where?' "'There, beyond you, a little piece, dark something, a dull shape of some kind, against the second fence.' I gazed, and he gazed. I said, "'Could it be a man, Clarence?' "'No, I think not. If you notice, it looks a-lit. Why, it is a man, leaning on the fence.' "'I certainly believe it is.' "'Let us go and see.' We crept along on our hands and knees until we were pretty close, and then looked up. Yes, it was a man, a dim, great figure in armor, standing erect, with both hands on the upper wire, and, of course, there was a smell of burning flesh. Poor fellow, dead as a doornail, and never knew what hurt him. He stood there like a statue, no motion about him, except that his plumes swished about a little in the night wind. We rose up and looked in through the bars of his visor but couldn't make out whether we knew him or not, features too dim and shadowed. We heard muffled sounds approaching, and we sank down to the ground where we were. We made out another night vaguely. He was coming very stealthily and feeling his way. He was near enough now for us to see him put out a hand, find an upper wire, then bend and step under it and over the lower one. Now he arrived at the first night, and startled slightly when he discovered him. He stood a moment, no doubt wondering why the other knight didn't move on. Then he said in a low voice, "'Why dreamest thou here, good Sir Mar?' And then he laid his hand on the corpse's shoulder and just uttered a little soft moan and sunk down dead. Killed by a dead man, you see. Killed by a dead friend, in fact. There was something awful about it. These early birds came scattering along after each other about one every five minutes in our vicinity during half an hour— They brought no armor of offense but their swords. As a rule, they carried the sword ready in the hand, and put it forward and found the wires with it. We would now and then see a blue spark when the night that caused it was so far away as to be invisible to us, but we knew what had happened all the same. Poor fellow, he had touched a charged wire with his sword, and been elected." We had brief intervals of grim stillness, interrupted with piteous regularity by the clash made by the falling of an ironclad, and this sort of thing was going on right along, and was very creepy there in the dark and lonesomeness. We concluded to make a tour between the inner fences. We elected to walk upright for convenience's sake. We argued that if discerned, we should be taken for friends rather than enemies, and in any case, We should be out of reach of swords, and these gentry did not seem to have any spears along. Well, it was a curious trip. Everywhere dead men were lying outside the second fence, not plainly visible, but still visible, and we counted fifteen of those pathetic statues, dead knights standing with their hands on the upper wire. One thing seemed to be sufficiently demonstrated. Our current was so tremendous that it killed before the victim could cry out. Pretty soon we detected a muffled and heavy sound, and next moment we guessed what it was. It was a surprise in force coming, whispered Clarence to go and wake the army and notify it to wait in silence in the cave for further orders. He was soon back, and we stood by the inner fence and watched the silent lightning do its awful work upon that swarming host. One could make out but little of detail, but he could note that a black mass was piling itself up beyond the second fence. That swelling bulk was dead men. Our camp was enclosed with a solid wall of the dead, a bulwark, a breastwork of corpses, you may say. One terrible thing about this thing was the absence of human voices. There were no cheers, no war cries. Being intent upon surprise, these men moved as noiselessly as they could, and always when the front rank was near enough to their goal to make it proper for them to begin to get a shout ready— of course, they struck the fatal line and went down without testifying. I sent a current through the third fence now and almost immediately through the fourth and fifth, so quickly were the gaps filled up. I believed the time was come now for my climax. I believed that that whole army was in our trap. Anyway, it was high time to find out, so I touched a button and set fifty electric suns aflame on the top of our precipice. Land, what a sight! We were enclosed in three walls of dead men. All the other fences were pretty nearly filled with the living who were stealthily working their way forward through the wires. The sudden glare paralyzed this host, petrified them, you may say, with astonishment. There was just one instant for me to utilize their immobility in, and I didn't lose the chance. You see, in another instant they would have recovered their faculties, then they'd have burst into a cheer and made a rush— and my wires would have gone down before it. But that lost instant lost them their opportunity forever. While even that slight fragment of time was still unspent, I shot the current through all the fences and struck the whole host dead in their tracks. There was a groan you could hear. It voiced the death-pang of eleven thousand men. It swelled out on the night with awful pathos. A glance showed that the rest of the enemy, perhaps ten thousand strong, were between us and the encircling ditch, and pressing forward to the assault. Consequently, we had them all, and had them past help. Time for the last act of the tragedy. I fired the three appointed revolver shots, which meant, "'Turn on the water.' There was a sudden rush and roar, and in a minute the mountain brook was raging through the big ditch and creating a river a hundred feet wide and twenty-five deep. "'Stand to your guns, men. Open fire!' The thirteen gatlings began to vomit death into the fated ten thousand. They halted, they stood their ground a moment against that withering deluge of fire, then they broke, faced about, and swept toward the ditch like chaff before a gale. A full fourth part of their force never reached the top of the lofty embankment. The three-fourths reached it and plunged over, to death by drowning. Within ten short minutes after we had opened fire, armed resistance was totally annihilated— The campaign was ended. We, fifty-four, were masters of England. Twenty-five thousand men lay dead around us. But how treacherous is fortune! In a little while, say an hour, happened a thing by my own fault, which— but I have no heart to write that. Let the record end here. End of chapter 43
0: Is your jaw still on the floor? Here I am recording the Sunday after Armistice Day or Veterans Day in the United States, the end of World War 1, the peace signed at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. And here we are listening to Mark Twain's story written 25 years before World War 1 started. And what does he use? electrified fences, trench warfare, and machine guns. The only other thing I can think of that's similar to this is John Adams, in letters back to his wife, predicted the 4th of July. He talked about how the signing of the Declaration of Independence would in the future be celebrated by parades in the street, cheering people And fireworks. He also predicted during the Continental Congress that if Jefferson's statement that would have ended slavery that had been put into the Declaration of Independence, if that didn't make it through committee, if it wasn't left in the document, that within 50 years the problem of slavery would break the country in half. They've had to take that line out of movies before because they were afraid that no one would believe it and this i think is probably this chapter is the reason that this book doesn't get taught very often how how can you take a comedy about a man who is self-important and self-aggrandizing, but at the same time, very, you know, his ingenuity is unmeasured. The man could build anything. He was quite clever. But clever is often dangerous, especially clever when combined with unrestrained ego. And as much as Twain likes being funny and witty and satiric, he is also a good storyteller. And once he put Hank Morgan on the path of thinking that he was better than everyone else in Arthur's England, and that all of his ingenious inventions would somehow revolutionize people's thinking, Twain couldn't hold back from taking the story where it had to go. And once Hank Morgan ripped into every cross-section of that society, you know, with the best of intentions, but once he went into England thinking that he could do everything better, there really was only one direction that it could all go. And of course, by inventing more and better ways to kill people, which he was inventing, you know, taking 18... 19th century inventions and and bringing them back to the 6th century, he's going to use them. So, we have one last chapter, and it's the wrap-up. And to me, parts of it are just as sad as the end of A Tale of Two Cities. So, here I give you...
1: Chapter 44, a postscript by Clarence. "'I, Clarence, must write it for him. "'He proposed that we two go out "'and see if any help could be accorded the wounded. "'I was strenuous against the project. "'I said that if there were many, "'we could do but little for them, "'and it would not be wise for us "'to trust ourselves among them anyway. "'But he could seldom be turned "'from a purpose once formed, "'so we shut off the electric current "'from the fences, took an escort along, "'climbed over the enclosing ramparts "'of dead knights,' and moved out upon the field. The first wounded Maul who appealed for help was sitting with his back against a dead comrade. When the boss bent over him and spoke to him, the man recognized him and stabbed him. That night was Sir Meliongrove's, as I found out by tearing off his helmet. He will not ask for help any more. We carried the boss to the cave and gave his wound, which was not very serious, the best care we could, In this service we had the help of Merlin, though we did not know it. He was disguised as a woman, and appeared to be a simple old peasant goodwife. In this disguise, with brown-stained face and smooth-shaven, he had appeared a few days after the boss was hurt, and offered to cook for us, saying her people had gone off to join certain new camps, which the enemy were forming, and that she was starving. The boss had been getting along very well, and had amused himself with finishing up his record." "'We were glad to have this woman, for we were short-handed. "'We were in a trap, you see, a trap of our own making. "'If we stayed where we were, our dead would kill us. "'If we moved out of our defences, we should no longer be invincible. "'We had conquered. In turn, we were conquered. "'The boss recognized this. We all recognized it. "'If we could go to one of those new camps "'and patch up some kind of terms with the enemy— "'Yes, but the boss could not go, and neither could I— FOR I WAS AMONG THE FIRST THAT WERE MADE SICK BY THE POISONOUS AIR bred BY THOSE DEAD THOUSANDS. OTHERS WERE TAKEN DOWN, AND STILL OTHERS. TOMORROW, TOMORROW, IT IS HERE, AND WITH THAT THE END. ABOUT MIDNIGHT I AWOKE AND SAW THAT HAG MAKING CURIOUS PASSES IN THE AIR ABOVE THE BOSS'S HEAD AND FACE, AND WONDERED WHAT IT MEANT. EVERYBODY BUT THE DYNAMO WATCH LAY STEEPED IN SLEEP, THERE WAS NO SOUND. The woman ceased from her mysterious foolery and started tiptoeing toward the door. I called out, "'Stop! What have you been doing?' She halted and said with an accent of malicious satisfaction, "'Ye were conquerors, ye are conquered. These others are perishing, you also. Ye shall all die in this place, everyone except him. He sleepeth now, and shall sleep thirteen centuries.' "'I am Merlin.' Then such a delirium of silly laughter overtook him that he reeled about like a drunken man and presently fetched up against one of our wires. His mouth is spread open yet, apparently, he is still laughing. I suppose the face will retain that petrified laugh until the corpse turns to dust. The boss has never stirred, sleeps like a stone. If he does not wake today, we shall understand what kind of sleep it is.' and his body will then be borne to a place in one of the remote recesses of the cave where none will ever find it to desecrate it. As for the rest of us, well, it is agreed that if any one of us ever escapes alive from this place, he will write the fact here and loyally hide this manuscript with the boss, our dear good chief, whose property it is, be he alive or dead. THE END OF THE MANUSCRIPT FINAL P.S. by M.T. The dawn was come when I laid the manuscript aside. The rain had almost ceased. The world was gray and sad. The exhausted storm was sighing and sobbing itself to rest. I went to the stranger's room and listened at his door, which was slightly ajar. I could hear his voice, and so I knocked. There was no answer, but I still heard the voice. I peeped in. The man lay on his back in bed, talking brokenly but with spirit, and punctuating with his arms, which he thrashed about restlessly, as sick people do in delirium. I slipped in softly and bent over him. His mutterings and ejaculations went on. I spoke, merely a word, to call his attention. His glassy eyes and his ashy face were alight in an instant with pleasure, gratitude, gladness, welcome. "'Oh, Sandy, you are come at last! "'How I have longed for you! "'Sit by me, do not leave me! "'Never leave me again, Sandy, never again! "'Where is your hand? "'Give it me, dear, let me hold it. There. "'Now all is well, all is peace, and I am happy again. "'We are happy again, isn't it so, Sandy? "'You are so dim, so vague. "'You are but a mist, a cloud, but you are here, "'and that is blessedness sufficient.' and I have your hand. Don't take it away. It is for only a little while. I shall not require it long. Was that the child? Hello, Central? She doesn't answer. Asleep, perhaps? Bring her when she wakes, and let me touch her hands, her face, her hair, and tell her goodbye. Sandy? Yes, you are there. I lost myself a moment, and I thought you were gone. Have I been sick long?' It must be so. It seems months to me, and such dreams, such strange and awful dreams, Sandy, dreams that were as real as reality, delirium, of course, but so real. Why, I thought the king was dead. I I thought you were in Gaul and couldn't get home. I thought there was a revolution. In the fantastic frenzy of these dreams, I thought that Clarence and I and a handful of my cadets fought and exterminated the whole chivalry of England.' "'but even that was not the strangest. "'I seemed to be a creature out of a remote unborn age, "'centuries hence, and even that was as real as the rest. "'Yes, I seemed to have flown back out of that age "'into this of ours, and then forward to it again, "'and was set down, a stranger, and forlorn, "'in that strange England, with an abyss of thirteen centuries "'yawning between me and you, between me and my home and my friends.' between me and all that is dear to me, all that could make life worth the living. It was awful, awfuler than you can ever imagine, Sandy. Ah, uh, watch by me, Sandy, stay by me every moment. Don't let me go out of my mind again. Death is nothing. Let it come, but not with those dreams, not with the torture of those hideous dreams. I cannot endure that again. Sandy, He lay muttering incoherently some little time. Then, for a time, he lay silent, and apparently sinking away toward death. Presently his fingers began to pick busily at the coverlet, and by that sign I knew that his end was at hand. With the first suggestion of the death-rattle in his throat, he started up slightly and seemed to listen. Then he said, "'A bugle?' It is the king, the drawbridge there, man, the battlements, turn out the... He was getting up his last effect, but he never finished it. End of chapter 44 and end of A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain.
0: So there you have it. In the end, Hank Morgan belonged in the sixth century with Sandy and his child. And Merlin won. It is not the end I expected when I first started reading the book, but it is, I think, the right end. So, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I know, you know, starting a book that is funny and having it turn out like this is uh, is not typical, but then Mark Twain isn't either. And I hope if I convinced you to stick with me and brought you all this 44 chapter way along, I hope if you enjoyed it that you'll come and put something in the show notes because I know we lost a lot of people along the way who got tired of of the silliness and um, didn't see any point in, in keeping up with it. And I know they'll come back for the next book, but I hope that they'll flip back and finish Connecticut Yankee. I think it's important. I think it's an important book, and I think it's especially important, well, because Mark Twain is so prescient, for one, but also because we don't do satire very well anymore. And to get a hold of a really good one is a rare and special event. And this one is. Thank you for sticking through such a long podcast. I hope it was worth it to get through the last final chapters of the book all at once. I think it's better that way. And uh, I will pick you up soon with A Christmas Carol and some other short stories. Trust me, Christmas Carol is not the story you think. I mean, it is, you know, it's The Three Ghosts, it's Scrooge, it's all that stuff, but there's a lot more going on in Dickens' narration than you ever get from any of the movies or plays. And, uh, and it's worth, it's worth a listen. So, have a great week. Thank you for sticking with me on this long and fraught (laughs) adventure. And, uh, I'll talk to you soon. Have a great one. Bye. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Visit Knitting Out Loud. Listen while you knit. And Knit Circus Online Magazine, offering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can check out the winter issue at www.knitcircus.com. And Scribe Tutor, the online writing tutor offering personalized and convenient writing help for all ages. You can find more about Scribe Tutor at ScribeTutor.com. And please visit the blogs and sites of Craftlit Supporters. Those links can be found in the sidebar of the show notes. The show notes can be found at craftlit.com. Craftlit can also be accessed by its own iPhone application. You can purchase it at the iPhone or iTouch application store, or you can subscribe free at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one.